Welcome, welcome my friends to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. I'm so happy to have you on board again and today you're going to hear me speak with singer-songwriter Terry Kitchen. I've known Terry Kitchen since the early 80s. He was a He's a close personal friend of mine, but he also happens to be an award-winning folk singer, songwriter. He's got a new album out called Lost Songs. We're going to talk about that. His uh, CD, Next Time We Meet, was number five on the National Folk DJ chart. Its single, Party on the Roof, was number four on the song chart. Um, Look... He's got a lot of great music, and he's done uh, a lot of great things. He came from Ohio, went to Los Angeles, ended up in Boston. It's a really cool story. And he and I have a tremendous shared love of pop music and certain people. Um, By the way, the new album, Lost Songs, which you can get kind of everywhere you get these things, it's currently number 13 on the National Folk DJ Airplay chart. Um, and if you go to my website, uh, is that really legal.com, uh, I will provide you the links uh, for Terry Kitchen and how to get all his music. Uh, make sure that you check out Abe's Muffins. They make great allergen-free muffins. They taste fantastic. Rate this show, subscribe to the show. But right now, sit back, relax, and listen to me talk with Terry Kitchen. Harry Kitchen, welcome to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. I am so excited to be talking to you today. Oh, well, thank you. It's, it's great to get a chance to talk to you as well. Um, as I will tell people in the intro, I think I've known you for over 30 years, probably I you, more. I met you at a bowling alley in Alston, Massachusetts. You were up visiting a friend of yours in Boston, and uh, we were friends, and we were all sort of just out bowling. And uh, your friend... Suzanne Brockman said, hey, this is my friend, Eric. He plays the cello. Uh, yeah. So how's that, that cello thing coming for you? Oh, I, it came and went. Um, my my wife, Holly, just bought me for my birthday in November a brand new Taylor guitar, which oh, beautiful. I, I'm totally in love with. And we'll talk more. I definitely want to talk about guitars and all that stuff. But yeah, so you and I go back. That was probably 1980 so Uh, that's would have been maybe yeah early 80s definitely like maybe 82 something like that um so you're from finley ohio you um were the valedictorian of your high school class is that (laughs) accurate it is in fact true okay and you ended up going to college in california yeah i went to occidental college which is a literal liberal arts uh, college right in LA. So it was really, you know, being from this small town environment in Finley, I really, really, really needed to get out of town, you know, uh, as a sort of aspiring rock musician. And especially, you know, the cool part of Ohio was over by Cleveland where Chrissy Hind and Devo were. Right. And so there was a scene there, but where we were was this little town, Finley. It's just a hundred miles of cornfields in any direction. So I desperately needed to get out of town. So LA sounded pretty good. Your story sounds like the beginning of an independent film, um, but except 
you, I, I can't even say the horrific things that would have to be included to be in an independent film now. Inappropriate relationships, drug addiction, some level of crime, none of which were part of your story, thankfully. Um, not, not in a big way, certainly. You know, <laughs> lucky, luckier than your average, you know, independent film uh, script victim, I guess. I don't know if you're the one who said it or our mutual friend, Bill, that I definitely want to talk about during the podcast. But somebody said to me at one point, well, have you ever noticed that everybody's from Ohio? And so yes. that yes. was pretty funny. Um, but one of the things that's so that's that's background. Um, of course, from the moment I met you, you were in a rock band in Boston that was um, having success at a certain level. You were playing a lot of clubs. I know it, it, you never got the record deal um, that people were hoping for in Boston that was part of your trip to Boston. Well, I don't know that anyone else was hoping for it, but we were hoping for it. <laughs> right. And um, so you're a guitarist and a singer and most importantly, a songwriter. And you guys came to town uh doing original songs. There were a couple of covers, but that was not, you guys weren't a cover band that threw in a couple of originals. You guys really aimed to be original. And is that where you really started working on your songwriting was as a member of that band, which is known as Loose Ties, by the way, for people who don't yeah, know. Um, well, it's my, my writing. It's just, you know, some people might keep a journal or do sketches and Writing was something that I always did, and I knew I was a big Beatles fan. As a little kid, I got the Hard Day's Night album when I was in first grade for Christmas, um, and I knew they wrote their own songs. So as early as fifth grade, I remember you know, trying to write my own songs. I don't think I really peaked until around seventh or eighth grade, but you know, it's just something that I did. And uh, when we moved, my, Finley, my early memories are actually um, from Pennsylvania. Then we moved out to Finley, Ohio. And I didn't really know anybody in town. I didn't have friends. So I spent my first year mostly in my bedroom writing songs. And this was my ninth grade year. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of junior high and high school in my bedroom listening to songs. And my guess is you maybe you had a similar background. There were a lot of 45s, mostly oh, capital. I mean, I, I remember the first 45 that I remember. I don't know if I bought it or I had an older brother and sister. On one side was um, eight days a week, and the flip side of that. I don't want to spoil the party. Exactly, which I just listened to the other day and thought, this song is a hit for anybody else. Yep. This yep. B side, and and my guess is we could just talk about Beatles B sides because there comes a point where there really isn't a B side; it's just the other A side. Right. Yep. yep. And so I don't want to spoil the party. Is so I don't want to get too far afield, but this is what's going to happen because you and I know each other a long time and we both love music. Um, and, and I would say that that's sort of where my love for songwriting starts. Like they created that. It wasn't like some guys in a back room saying, here, sing this. It was right. you know, John and Paul sitting in a, you know, in Paul's bedroom with their guitars and, and came up with that song. Right. And then they came into the studio and told Ringo and George, it goes like this. And then those guys, instead of taking days to figure it out, like just go, okay, let's do it. Right. And that, that was an era when there were very few overdubs in recording. And for people who don't know what that means, it basically means like four guys got together, they recorded what they played there pretty much 
sometimes they would add a few vocals on top of that. But for the most part, it was really as close to live music as right. possible. Yep. There weren't any weird special effects and they certainly couldn't fix a lot of things after like they might now. So the vocals, which are so really great in terms of their tuning and their ability to blend, were not the result of technology. They were result of excellent musicianship. Right. And, and you know, that, you know, the John and Paul sound, you know, it's just so... It's so amazing. A song like We Can Work It Out, where there's that B section, you know, life is very short and there's no time. The way their voices <laughs> blend, you know, it's just, it's just, it's beautiful. Right. And the writing, you know, a lot of times when people write together, they do it in all sorts of different ways. The very famous, you know, Elton John and Bernie Taupin. Bernie comes with a bunch of lyrics. Elton has the music. It happens. With Lennon and McCartney, as they've talked about a lot, sometimes they both have pieces of songs and those pieces would fit together. Like if it's darker, if it sounds like Paul's doing the start of it and it's cheerful and there's a dark part, like, you know, there's no time for fussing. And fighting, that's probably John, John <laughs> you know, exactly. like getting better. It's getting better. It can't get no worse. Right. That's John. All right. Well, anywho, I, I don't know. Oh, so my point with eight days a week was. Um, I had watched, and I don't know if you've seen it, the Ken Burns country music documentary. Sure. Yep. Um, fantastic. And um, Buck Owens and the Buckaroos were a phenomenon during the early 60s that a lot of people may not know about, but they actually influenced the Beatles. And the Beatles, one of the few cover songs they did was... Act Naturally. Right, which, which Ringo sang, which is a great song. But I can't help but think they were thinking of Buck Owens and the Buckaroos when they did I Don't Want to Spoil the Party. Absolutely. It, yeah. George's guitar work is very sort of that kind of rockabilly country sound. Yeah. So fantastic. So what I love is you and I, because I think you and I also have very similar music tastes, we're coming up in this era when the Beatles were the creme de la creme. I mean, we were exposed to other great bands, but then there was a, I was just listening to a band that some people might not know. You will definitely know. Tommy James and the Shondells. Oh, absolutely. Which nobody talks about Tommy James anymore. But I should come over to my house more often. <laughs> I would say he had at least 10 number ones. I just have to guess that's accurate. Would you sound about right? Yeah, um, something like that, like Crimson and Clover, Hanky Panky, uh, Moni Moni, uh, Sweet Cherry Wine. Um, oh, um, we're running just as fast as we can. Um, yep. yeah. I think we're alone I think now. We're alone now. Yeah. I mean, these are all legitimate big rock hits. He was not an attractive man. Sorry, Tommy, if you're still <laughs> around, I apologize. But you know, he they and they were just not. They didn't have the charisma, but they hit the charts with regularity. Um, that kind and, of. And song, I think they were they were what I would call a singles band. Like their specialty was that, you know, two minute and 30 second song with a great hook that you heard once and remember for the rest of your life. I mean, we could probably name, you know, 10 more Tommy James songs off the top of our head. Um, and but, any wedding band worth their salt better know right, And, them. you know, and even now I would say like Hanky Panky is one of the classic rock and roll records. I mean, you can't you can't say teenage sex any better than <laughs> my baby does the hanky panky. You know, yeah, that's it. it. And 
And while some might say it's not Bob Dylan, and of course they'd be accurate, um, there is an art, and I, this is a perfect transition here. There is an art to writing a song that is not poetry, that is not a short story, but has elements of those things. And it's, I don't like comedy. I don't know that you can teach somebody these things. What do you, so uh, what, I, I see you hemming and hawing because people can't see you. And that's well, fine. since one thing I do is actually teach songwriting, <laughs> I can, you know, I thank Let you for, you know, totally debunking my, 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 profession no you know it's it's something that yes i think you either get it or you don't and you can you can get better at it you can learn tricks you can develop a toolbox but it's just whether or not somebody is a is kind of a creator and that's in that's in a lot of fields you know actors like I'm, I'm looking at you know this cool painting behind you on your wall and somebody oh, you. you know some somebody painted that and they somehow in the combination of what they saw in their head and their talent with their brush and some paints, they made this really cool sort of out of focus, soft image, you know, that's that you would never get with a with a photograph. You know, you couldn't you couldn't take a, a picture of something like that in real life. You have you have to create that with art. And so writing is the same thing. You have a kernel of an idea and you can think about how to develop it and learn some tools to develop it. But, you know, the idea comes from somewhere. So you know that that's what can't be taught i'm gonna yeah i i not what, what i mean to say is look I, I i was an actor for some time and lots of actors we take acting courses but there are some people that can't act it's never going to happen for them they just don't I, and i would be one of them <laughs> <laughs> they're lovely people they have other attributes and then of course there's this natural some people just it's like falling out of bed they do a brilliant job but you can still polish your craft so I would say, I don't even know if you teach people songwriting. My guess is you teach songwriters how to be better songwriters. Is that a way I could save my face here in this conversation? Oh, well, I mean, there are different levels. There's, you know, there's such a thing as beginning a songwriting, but, but some people just do it for a hobby. It's like some people might pick up a guitar after a long day's work and play a couple of Beatles songs and that, that gets them through their day. And that's great. And that's a right. lot of fun. So some people write songs like that. It's like, oh, my wife's anniversary is coming up. Wouldn't it be nice to write her a song? Right. And that's, that's great. But then there's that, that thing, like you, you mentioned Bob Dylan, where, you know, it's kind of crazy that, that we're so establishment that he won the Nobel Prize. But if you think about songwriting before Bob Dylan, which is how much is that doggy in the window, you know, and then songwriting after Bob Dylan, which is John and Paul writing A Day in the Life, you know, it's it's just this huge quantum leap. So, right. you know, I have no right, idea what your what question was, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, what's your yes, favorite Bob so, Dylan song? How about that? But so, but so um, <laughs> you can, again, you can, you can develop, you know, tools, how to paint better, how to write a better song, how to, you know, write a, a better short story or something. But... There's something inside that's gonna, that has to be there. That kernel has to be there that you're gonna hone. It's like, you have to be Michelangelo, Michelangelo to put a, to look at a block of marble and see David. Right. You know, I could never look at a rock and say, oh yeah, I see exactly the statue that's inside that. But he yeah, did. Yeah, me either. Yeah. I, it's funny. One of the last trips that my wife Holly and I took, we were actually in uh, Florence. 
don't nice. know if you've ever had a chance yeah. to go. And I've, I was in front of the David. I was like, yeah, this does not disappoint. This is a big deal. Um, I, and what spoke to me even more was in that particular museum where the David is, which it's tremendous. People have to understand the, the, the David is huge. Um, there are these other almost modern pieces where the figures are struggling to come out of the marble. Like cool. there are yeah. slaves coming up. Um, that's a, that's another time, another podcast. I actually am curious. Is there, is because Dylan was such an incredible figure um, and he, he came out not writing what one would think of as pop songs. Um, you know, he was known as a folk singer doing things like blowing in the wind. Um, but then, you know, a song like Positively Fourth Street, which is one of my favorite of his songs, which has... It figures you would like that song, <laughs> Eric Rubin. But I love that. For people, for people who don't know it, that's the one that's like, you've got a lot of nerve. <laughs> right. And I really love the line. Um, um, I wish you could stand in my shoes. Or for just one minute, you could stand in my shoes. Then you'd know what a drag it is to see you. <laughs> and it's just like, it's so dripping with venom. And it's, there's nothing, there's no subtlety in that song. There's no subtext in that song. And yet it's still incredibly artful. I can't explain it. And, uh, I, you know, do you look at that sort of stuff and go, wow? Do you? I, well, I think, I think the wow word? thing is, you know, he was obviously this accomplished songwriter, but he, he had a record contract. They wanted him to sell a lot of records. And he's like, no, I'm not going to write the love songs that everybody's going to buy. I'm going to write this this song that basically is four minutes of me cutting someone down to these little tiny pieces of whittled wood, you know, and, and he's good at it. And nobody had ever heard a song like that on the radio before or like like a Rolling Stone. You know, it's this masterpiece. And again, it's it's very critical. It's not this, you know, oh, I'm so in love with this amazing woman or free spirit kind of, you know, hippie song or whatever it is. You know, I'd hate to have that song sung about me, you know. <laughs> But, but so he had the nerve to write it. That's that's the thing that I think was really his his breakthrough was he developed the skills. He was a huge Woody Guthrie fan who wrote these great folk songs, you know, true folk songs. And then he took those skills and said, I'm looking at the world now and I'm going to write about what I see now. And he was brave enough to do it. So when you when you first started, my guess is you're like, I want to write Beatle-like songs. You want to write pop songs, fun songs. And did there come a time when you started to take your songwriting more seriously than someone in junior high? And maybe you took it very seriously from the beginning. I actually know you, my guess is you took it very seriously from the beginning. I, 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 I did take it, you know, somewhat seriously. I mean, I recognized that I wasn't very good. So I, you know, did a lot of homework, spent a lot of time, you know, just writing whatever the idea of the song was, just trying to write a better song. But I would say even a band like the Beatles, the songs that kind of spoke to me were the, again, you know, the sadder kinds of songs, like the great John Lennon song, You've Got to Hide Your Love Away, you know, here I stand head in hand, or right. I don't want to spoil the party. I mean, if you listen to the lyric, you know, tonight she's made me sad, but I still love her. He's, you know, he's, he's cruising these parties, trying to find this girl that he's in love with who maybe has totally forgotten about him, you know? Right. 
So those are the kind of songs that I think they get they got so deep inside of me that really made me want to have that talent. And and I think maybe the the greatest I don't know compliment maybe or reward as a writer that I've gotten are the times when people have really let me know that something I've written has helped them through a time. You know, has they've maybe identified with a character or an experience in a song and that's helped them get through it. And you know, that's that's the best. Like I can't imagine getting through my high school years without the Neil Young album um after the gold rush. Yeah. You know, great it, album. It, it, the whole album it's it's very melancholy. You know, it's it, so you know, don't let it bring you down. Even he, he said, this is a song that'll bring you right down. It's called <laughs> Don't Let It Bring You Down. You know, but, but you know, just my high school years felt like that. There was a bleakness, you know, again, we had moved to town and, and actually I had a sibling. Uh, my only uh, sibling was a sister who had moved the year before, I mean, who had passed away the year before we moved there. So my family was kind of shell-shocked. Right. We were in this new town. My father had had to move there for his job. And so we didn't have a lot of like the extended family resources, you know, where, you know, all your neighbors pitch in and give you macaroni and cheese when somebody passes away. Because we didn't we didn't know our neighbors yet. They didn't know us. You know, it, they weren't bad people. It was just we were fish out of water in, in right. that town. So it was but really- you formed you formed some excellent friendships that led to that band Loose Tides. And by the way, I have friends from Minnesota. Uh, it's a hot dish or a casserole that okay. you bring over, as I've heard, right? It's like mac and yeah. cheese, right? Um, but so I'm just going to drop some names here. Chris Peeler, sure. who is a friend of ours, I think he lives in Michigan now, and yeah, yeah. he is a really excellent drummer and percussionist. Great drummer. Great drummer. And our very dear friend who passed away about a year or two ago, Bill Coleman, who's a bass yeah. player, um, as much of a music nerd as you or I perhaps even more so um, in an irritating fashion. If you don't mind me saying, Bill no. was interesting because he loved, I mean, yes, he loved music, but he loved the theater of music. Like he, he actually did have an acting background, was in, you know, had some big roles in like the high school musicals at our high school and had this great college acting career. Um, as well as his as well as his love of music. So for him, like the idea would be like somebody like David Bowie, who could mm -hmm. create this interesting music, but then also could uh, in, inhabit a persona and maybe do it in film or do it on Broadway. I mean, David Bowie starred in The Elephant Man on Broadway. With Rock no, star David Bowie, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, with no prosthetics, like he right. contorted himself into this thing. Right. Right. And, and by the way, before that, he became Ziggy Stardust. And it was a whole persona that was part of the album and the tour. And if anybody ever gets a chance, there was a touring art exhibition of David Bowie um, from his earliest parts of his career to the very end, including the Ziggy Stardust costumes. Yep. Yep. Costume from uh, Is There Life on Mars, the video with the video playing and all this stuff. And um, yeah, Bill would have freaking loved that too. Um, well, uh, and one, you know, one thing about Bowie, again, when, when you're, you know, 14 years old and sitting in your bedroom in Finley, Ohio, and you have David Bowie saying, you know, the most important line from rock and roll suicide, you're not alone. I mean, those three words were really important. Were so important. Yeah. And he also, 
I think that he showed people they could do, they could be who they wanted to be and it wasn't a problem. That they weren't weird or they were weird, but who cares? Right. Not, right. And um, I think that he was a lifeline for a lot of for a lot of people, I mean, I'm sure, especially in the LGBTQ community, but, you know, in one way, it, it doesn't even have to do with gender or sexual preference. When you're in that age group, you're just weird anyway. You know, with, with all awkward, of the hormones. You know, yeah, yep. yep. Or, well, and when I say you're weird, I mean, like, you just feel like you're weird. Yes, absolutely. You're, you're like, you know, you're struggling to, you're on this journey that you're told is exciting and wonderful. And well, I'll speak for myself. I didn't always feel that it was exciting and wonderful. <laughs> now, I, I would think that being a songwriter would be an interesting way to um, be able to express yourself during that. You know, I was in theater a lot in high school and I think that that was really helpful for me and also being a musical performer, but I didn't write any songs until later in my life. Do you ever actually look back at any of songs you might have written into high school when you started to feel like you were becoming more of a songwriter? And have you have you at least looked look back with nostalgia or even thought these might be things I could work on from a different point of view? Um, well, there's, there is one song that I wrote when I was a junior in high school. I went back, I got invited back to my to my high school, you know, sort of an alumni award thing you know minor celebrity that i am but it's it's you know it's kind of neat there's actually a a painted picture of me on a you know in a mural outside the the main office of finley high school so the next time you're driving through finley ohio stop in the high school and you know see my see my picture on the wall i will um and so they invited me to do this concert, which was which is very sweet and so i thought wouldn't it be fun to do a song that i wrote while i was a high school student there oh. so so I had been in with our friend Bill uh, in um, the Pygmalion, My Fair Lady, uh, the, the musical My Fair Lady. And I developed a crush on the woman who played Eliza. And, you know, and sort of getting the female lead in, in a high school musical is a big deal. And, if, you know, and right. it was really so that put her like 12 echelons above me in the social status. So I had no actual chance, you know. I mean, we did get to be friends a little bit, but, you know, I was like down on this lower level. But it's but I wrote this song, Eliza, about sort of this crush I had on the actress playing, you know, playing the playing the character. And so I did it at this concert when I went back to Finley a few years ago uh, for this alumni concert. And it was, you know, it was really fun to do. And it's a pretty good song. So, you know, I was I was happy that I remembered it and it sort of made sense in that context. So even though those were definitely my training wheels years, I would say, you know, you could you could listen to one song and go, oh, well, that's definitely off the first Aerosmith album or, oh, that's definitely, you know, <laughs> David Bowie's Hunky Dory album. But, you know, I was sort of learning my craft. And the good thing about it, I think, was that especially for me, I didn't have a lot of outlets for my for my feelings. I was you know, I, I mean, I wasn't like beaten up, but but there weren't a lot of people that got me. I think one reason that that Bill and I became friends wasn't just the music, but it was also the time that Monty Python hit the airwaves. <laughs> and so, you know, we had two conversations early on. One was about the Beatles and one was about Monty Python. And that was that was it for the rest of high school. Every time Monty Python was on, he was over in our living room watching it, you know, and then we'd go back to his basement and listen to Beatle records. 
you know, it so sounds like a great friendship. Yeah, it, it was, you know, and Chris was this great musician that I had actually uh, met in ninth grade. We jammed together for the first time in ninth grade, but then they were so, uh, I guess, indulgent of me that they played through a lot of my mediocre songs. You know, I was not writing masterpieces in 10th grade, but we we played a teen center gig where we did an entire set of our own songs, which certainly the people there weren't expecting it. They were expecting, <laughs> like, you know, hey, play some ZZ Top, you know, hey, play some Alice Cooper. And we're like, OK, we'll do that later. But right now we're going to play this full hour of our songs. And there were a couple that were pretty good, you know, but but imagine being Bill and Chris and I'm, you know, probably pretty full of myself. Hey, I'm this, you know, songwriter. I'm the only, you know, the only glam songwriter in the class of 76 at Finley High School. So, you know, so they indulged me enough to to play it and, you know, to play those songs. And, you know, they got to be, you know, little rock stars, too. But but that's really why we had to leave Ohio and, and, and come to Boston, because, there, you know, Boston was a place where there actually was a real music scene where you could play your own songs. So I, I know a lot of things happened for Loose Ties in a way. You guys did ultimately record an album on your own. Yep. You did do video. You, um, But ultimately for you, you ended up leaving the band and... Being well, a solo act. You ask either I left the band or the band left me. <laughs> well, it's funny from my point of view because I certainly wasn't in the midst of it or the thick of it, but I saw things. Um, so the short answer is I, I don't know, and isn't that just like in Rashomon? Everybody's got their point of view, right? Right. Um, but ultimately, regardless of points of view, you became much more of what people would call a singer songwriter. I don't even know if I call you a folk singer because I, and I don't know how you feel about those labels. Right. I mean, I mean, they're useful to a degree in that now, you know, if you came to a concert, I would have an acoustic guitar, which, in, you know, in most people's minds or eyes makes me a folk singer, which is good in terms of you wouldn't want to come to a concert of mine expecting, you know, a heavy metal show and, and what, you know, so it's more listening music although i do play some stuff with some rhythm i still like to dance it's really it's really fun have some percussion or whatever but it is more listening music you know more more folky and also folk in the sense that i think that now that i know more about that, that type of music it's it's important to remember that music can be a really important tool for passing on stories so like the labor movement or the civil rights movement i'm in the music at those rallies and you know imagine being at outside the Lincoln Memorial and Dr. Martin Luther King is giving his I have a dream speech and then stepping up to the microphone like Pete Seeger did and, you know, and having the perfect song to sing there. You know, you know I just saw um, this uh, a movie One Night in Miami, I think is what it's called. Oh, yes. absolutely. Um, which um, I recommend to everybody. Um, it's basically uh, four incredible African-American men meeting in a hotel in Miami uh, after Muhammad Ali wins the championship. This is now, of course, the conversation is fictional, but the fact is they did hang out, these four people, um, uh, for an evening together. And it's Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, Muhammad Ali, and um, 
Oh, uh, Brown, uh, James Brown, the football player. And yeah, Jim Brown, Jim Brown, Jim Brown sorry. Yeah, James Brown is more of the R&B singer. I feel um, good. <laughs> yes. Um, what is my point in bringing this up? Oh, Sam Cooke ultimately sings what is arguably one of the greatest songs of the civil rights movement. Change is going to come. Yes. And that I, I'm just going to put that aside for a moment and say there are people now, you know, after the Black Lives Matter movement has happened this past summer, we're still happening, marches, I'm not going to list all the terrible uh, police brutality things that have happened in this year, because also they've been happening for a long time. They've just been more documented now. And there's been sort of a tipping point reached. Um, and I have to tell you, I'm embarrassed to say, I don't know any of the songs or the acts that are doing things now that speak to that. But I'd be surprised if there weren't some. Oh, acts. There, de there definitely are. And I'll, I'll mention one, if you don't mind. Um, there's Please. a very talented songwriter on the folk scene named Tom Prasado Rao, who wrote a song called $20 Bill that's very specifically about what happened to George Floyd and kind of the system behind what happened you know, to George Floyd. And George Floyd was the African-American man who had the cop kneel on his neck until he asphyxiated and died for, again, you know, he was accused of trying to pass a counterfeit $20 bill, which, you know, should somebody do that? Of course not. But it's know, also not a uh, pen right, right. penalty was, for that is not that. in danger. There was no there, there. No one was in danger. You know, not any of the passersby, not anybody on the police force. So there was just no possible justification in terms of self-defense or subduing somebody or whatever. It was and if you've seen it, which most of us have seen the act yeah, of Mr. Yeah. Floyd be killed, executed by a police officer. It was done so, I hate to use this word, but dispassionately, inhumanly. But you know, you, I, I saw, you have an album coming out. I want to talk about it. One of the songs that you've included on the album is a song uh, called Nickel Bag. Yes. Yeah. And um, while you certainly didn't write it during Black Lives Movement, it does speak about white privilege. Can you talk about Nickelback? Yeah, and and I think that in in a sense, you know, so you know, I did write it pretty recently. It's although it takes it it takes place back in you know historical time, you know, maybe back in the seventies. But it's about this white kid who's a, a high school kid who's dealing pot, like a lot of high school kids did at the time. And you know, he's at a at a Pink Floyd concert and he gets sloppy and he gets seen by cops and thrown up against the wall and arrested and the classic thing of getting put in jail overnight. But then when it comes to actually, you know, going to court and he's going to have this thing on his record and spending the rest of his life in jail or even, you know, getting what, you know, th bad things can happen in, in jail, sure. you know, the, the, the sort of the, the system gives him a second chance. They, they leave the case open, meaning rather than, you know, it's just left hanging. He's put on like a suspended sentence so that if it ever comes up again, then then he's going to be in more jeopardy. But he's totally allowed to go on with his life. He, his basically community service is he has to mow the lawn at his church, you know, that Which would be a good thing to do anyway. Yes. But, you know, as opposed to, you know, if 
African-Americans or, you know, not just African-Americans, but people of color and also people not of means. This was a kid who was probably a middle class kid with both his parents because they both of his parents come, you know, come to get him out of jail. So, you know, for people of less means, the system comes down harder because they just don't have the resources, you know, at their disposal to fight back post bail, maybe right away or whatever it is, or even the attitude of the whatever judge you know, might be, you know, you're going to get what you deserve. And a lot of people, you know, in law for in law enforcement have admitted, well, if this kid wasn't guilty of that crime, he probably did another one. So we might as well just put him in jail now. As you know, and as my listeners probably know, my day job is I'm an attorney. Yeah. One of the things I do is I handle criminal cases for indigent defendants at the appellate level. Um, and, uh, I mean, I go to prisons. I certainly have been to a lot of prisons before the pandemic. And, you know, the people of color for the most part. And when you look at records and you see the disparate way that people of color are treated versus, you know, uh, non, non, I don't know, white people. Um, and as you say, you know, people can afford a certain level of representation or there are just two systems of justice. There's just no way to deny it. It still exists that way. But back to lost songs. And if you disagree with that, by the way, you can go to isthatreallylegal.com and leave me a message and tell me how I, after 30 years of being an attorney, just don't get it. It's fine with me. Um, and then you can go buy some Abe's Muffins, which is our, <laughs> our sponsor. <laughs> if you have questions about either of those things, please go to the website and drop me a line. But Lost Songs is your most recent album. But what I love about this is the whole concept as to how this came to be. That's why I thought Nickelback was an older song, and I, I apologize for that. But what, can you tell people what, how Lost Songs came to be? Sure. Um, so um, last year, uh, February of 2020, I had just put out an album, which is called Next Time We Meet, which is actually dedicated to our friend Bill Coleman, who we've been talking about, who passed away of cancer a couple of years ago, who was my bandmate and you know best friend from high school. And basically, we really got each other through Finley, Ohio. Um, Speaking of was, prison. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which was, yes, exactly. Although maybe not as fun as prison. Um, ah. but, but, you know, losing Bill wasn't wasn't just like losing a friend from my current daily life like oh what are you going to do this weekend let's go see the new naked gun movie or whatever it might be but it was really like losing half of my brain because i could say to bill who is that kid who sat behind us in english class who like always picked his nose like in high school who picks your nose when you're in high school you know and and bill would go oh that was you know such 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 and such a kid and then we'd be able to sort of complete the story and remember and stay in touch with all these different phases of our lives, the, you know, the rock and roll years, whatever it might be. And then also was kind of interesting as we both, you know, met people that we, that we married, Bill, you know, has a daughter watching him become a father, you know, it was this stunning achievement for somebody who I knew as this, you know, scrawny 10th grader who was totally spoiled by his mother, who would manipulate his mother to get him. Imagine being a 10th grader, just starting your first band, and he walks into a music store with his mom and comes out with this stacked, huge bass amplifier, like as if we were going to be playing at the Fillmore. <laughs> you know, so, you know, having having all of those you know, all those feelings. So it's basically a whole album's worth of different aspects of the relationship and different, 
you know, insights in, into that and the passage of time. And then- I, by the way, I do want to interrupt to say there was a memorial service a couple of months after a bill passed. You sang, my wife, Holly, was blown away by the entire memorial service. She had never met Bill or pretty much anybody there because she and I live in Brooklyn and she and I met after I moved away from Boston. And she was like, oh my God, you know all these people and they're all really lovely. And she was especially touched by the fact that you sang some beautiful music at the service. The the one song I remember um, was a song called Too Soon Gone. Is that a Jules Shear song? Yeah, it's a Jules Shear song. One of my favorite songwriters who I've been, you know, a fan of since his band, uh, Jules and the Polar Bears, back in the in the late seventies, and it was, you know, Bill chose the song. Bill, you know, Bill knew it was coming, so he he had some definite ideas about what he wanted at his service, and you know, he so he picked the song, and I was very, you know, touched that he invited me to sing it, and our friends. Uh, Bryce Buchanan that we had been in the band with and then Brian Middleton who he had been in a later band with so it was really a very very sweet moment and then we also sang a song of Bill's which was which was really nice too yeah so, uh, that actually uh... it, it was a, it was a sweet was a sweet service but so anyway get, sorry um, back to your and I, yeah, so, so, I apologize so, I do want people to get that by, by the way Terry Kitchen is not just a friend of mine as I will hope to put in the intro He's been called one of New England's best songwriters by the Boston Globe. So, uh, you know, this is not just a friend of mine. Like, this guy's got credibility. The, the full a, quote is, one of Boston's best songwriters and a friend of Eric Rubin's. I always have to cut out those things that mention me yeah. in all mass media. It's just embarrassing. You know, as Paul McCartney told me once, don't name drop. Um, anyway, uh, you were saying, uh, which so album we, were we, we talking know, about? And it's, it's a lot of work to do an album. I mean, it, it's a yeah. great process to hear the songs come to life, but you know, you're, you're listening to the same song a couple hundred times cause you're working out the bass part and the vocal harmonies and all this sort of stuff. So, you know, it's, it's this, it's like giving birth. Like when you, when you're finally done, you've been working on it for nine months or whatever, and you finally push it out there. And it was doing really well. It was on the radio. It made it to number five on the National Folk Airplay chart, which was kind of cool. And um, one song from the album called Party on the Roof had named it, made it to number four on the song chart. And so we were, I was about to go on a tour, which is what you do when you have a new album. You go out and play it in front of everybody you can. You play either, you know, folk festivals or maybe Little Dive coffee bars in Seattle. And I had all that set up. And then COVID happened. And all of a sudden that was canceled. Nobody could go anywhere. And so I was home. I wasn't up to like sitting down and writing another album of, you know, songs about being stuck at home and you're still here, <laughs> you know? So so I started playing some some songs that I had written along the way. They had never really fit into whatever album or project that I was doing. And I had like 15 or 16 songs and then maybe a couple new ones like, you know, Nickelback after George Floyd, that after that happened. Another song called Here's to Us is a more recent song. But I thought, you know, some of these are pretty good. So why not record them and and see if they sort of deserve to see the light of day? And so I did. And I think it came out pretty well. It's out on the radio. Um, A lot, you know, it got a song got played in New Zealand and a song got played in Israel and, you know, Canada and a bunch of folk stations across the country. So I'm glad people are, you know, are enjoying it. You know, again, they're 
it's curious because some of these songs are older, so I'm not, it's not like they're wrenching my heart at the moment. Like usually if I put out an album, it's like, oh, my heart is raw from what I've just been through that created this album. And so I have a little more distance in some of these, but in a sense, it was maybe good because I was able to do some songs that are kind of silly, which normally, if you've ever listened to my albums, you know, we both want to commit suicide by the end of the album. I don't, I don't know that we're pushing a lot of product saying that, but um, <laughs> I think that, you know, there's, uh, look, there's a place for all that music. And I like it when people like you and other artists give me something to feel terrible about and then give me something silly that's got a hook in it that I can, you know, sing as something else is happening. I also want to point out that you and I have lots of friends in common who are musicians who I think collaborated on this album with you. How did that even happen given COVID and all that stuff? Because I know like, just as an example, you know, Sarah Telford or Jeannie Bergeron are two great singers um, who I actually used to sing with in a professional acapella group just to show my nerd cred before acapella was cool. And I know there's a premise in that statement, uh, but we'll just let it go. Well, but, it, was, um, it was cool in the 50s. Doo-wop <laughs> was really cool. And then you hit the window when it wasn't cool. And now it's cool again. So timing, that's the secret to your career, Eric. It's timing. Well, yeah, well, there is definitely a secret about my career. But so Sarah and Didi, did they come over to so, your yeah, so home studio? Was, I, I have a, you know, a home studio, which I'm sitting in now. And there's a patio outside the window so we ran microphones and microphone cords out the window so we were still kind of respecting all the COVID stuff you had to do and it was really fun so i'm sort of in the booth here and they were outside we'd have to wait while the school bus went by or whatever it was or a plane went overhead you know that you could could hear but but they got some you know some good uh singing done a great violin player named jackie damsky is on the album a really cool uh, pedal steel guitarist named Norman Zoker's on the album. So it was really fun. You know, a little bit more of it's me probably than in normal circumstances because you couldn't really get together and jam like you normally would. But so I got to play, you know, got to play some bass on some tracks. I got to play some electric guitar. Let so me ask fun. you, I, I'm going to go all tech. We, by the way, as I may have said, but I absolutely knew, time is flying by because you and I haven't talked in a while and I really enjoy talking to you especially about music especially about creativity um and a lot of time has gone by very quickly I have really uh gotten back into my songwriting and I have projects going on that that's not what this is about but my what really helped me get back into it was I, I think I told you my wife bought me uh for my birthday a new Taylor guitar a Taylor is a very nice guitar um and I am always interested in what people's instruments are. I remember when you were in Loose Ties, you had, as a rock guitar, it, it was not a big known brand. I think it was Hondo, which in recent years has been written up as a really great, like Japanese made or, right. yep. and, and has a lot more respect from people now than it might have then. Um, and I know that Bryce, who played uh, along with you on some projects, also had a Hondo right, as yep. one of his regularly used guitars. Yep. Are, do you still use that? Like, what, what are you playing? What guitars sure. are you playing? Um, well, um, since you mentioned the electric, and, I'm, and if you do get to hear the song Nickel Bag, it was, you know, again, it's the, the, uh, the kid, the high school kid goes to a Pink Floyd concert, you know, where he's, where he's selling his pot. So I had this, 
I had to be David Gilmour. So oh, I, I, I wish I could be David. So I, I got out my, uh, I have a Fender Stratocaster electric guitar and plugged it into some, some effects. So if you, if you get to listen to that track, all those little weird guitar sounds in the background are actually me trying to be David Gilmour. <laughs> I didn't, yeah. didn't quite get there, but, but it was really, really fun. Um, so that's my main electric guitar. I do actually have a, a Taylor 812 Grand Concert acoustic guitar, that's a great which, guitar, which I got back in the early 1990s. And the great thing about acoustic guitars is they do mellow and age so if you take care of it and you're lucky enough not to have it you know dropped by an airline or something <laughs> then you know chances are the guitar is going to improve the sound will just get a little a little sweeter over time do you and find well uh, for me i had another guitar that i played and messed around with but i didn't pick it up as often with the Taylor, I just really love this guitar, and it also feels easier to play. I feel like a better player. I feel like it sounds better, and that just encourages me to like sit for a while and start oh, to write yep. more. Um, what a what a by the way, what bass were you playing? Oh, you know, um, I have one of Bill Coleman's basses. Oh, so that's really special. Uh, Bill's wife Jody, uh, you know, I had actually barred it when you know to do some recording when. You know when bill was still when bill was still here he had you know loaned me one of his bases and jody said you know why don't you keep it for a while so you can you know use it so bill's bill's base is all over the album which is which is kind of sweet oh that's awesome i'm really glad to hear that yeah um i think that there are probably people who think they can't you know i've had all sorts of creative people on the show that's part of what i do and on one hand i don't want people to think that anybody can do anything. Cause I actually just don't believe that. I, I'm a curmudgeon. Like you need to put in the time, you, you know, people aren't great by accident. Yes. People have tremendous talent, but people don't see the many hours put in front. However, that being said, I also don't think it's my business to discourage people from being creative. I think that there's a lot of reasons to do it, whether you ultimately have a career in it, or like you said, you just write a song for somebody you love. What, what, um, for you, and I, I know you teach songwriting, we talked about that and joked about it in the beginning. Um, do you have any insights for people as to what makes, uh, how you know when you're on the right track or, you know, do you have a process where you're like, no, I, I sit down this many hours a week or, oh, I only do it when I feel motivated or like, what's your process? Well, I would say I was probably more disciplined when I was a little bit younger and, and when I felt I was really learning the craft. And then I just did it as much as, you know, as much as I could. Like Dylan used to drive people crazy because he never put his guitar down. <laughs> I mean, he never put his guitar down. Imagine how irritating that would be when you're around somebody 24 hours a day and all they do is sit in the corner and play guitar. You know, I was like that guy for a while. That, you know, that irritating and only more more hunched over with a notepad and trying to write, you know, oh, what would Joni Mitchell think of this line or, you know, that kind of thing. But now what I do, I think really the most important part of the process for me, and I think for a lot of writers is when you have an idea and you never know what's going to spark an idea, just what's going to make you think, oh, I have an interesting thought about that. I, I really want to like work on that and see what comes out or it just like plucks a heartstring and makes you feel a certain way. And then you just want to communicate that feeling. So you want to 
if it's jotting it down in a notebook, if it's a lyric idea, or if it's a musical thing running to your, you could even just be your cell phone and you call yourself, you know, you know, and you just leave yourself a voicemail of you playing that magic chord on your guitar or whatever, whatever right. that little bit. Of, and for me, it's rhythm. I always have to capture the rhythm because I, if I write, I can write the notes on a paper, I can write the chords, I can write the words, but rhythm is tricky because rhythm yeah. feel. So I really want to do it into it into a tape recorder or a phone or something so that I get that exact rhythm, that groove. Because that to me, even if it's like you think of a song being more lyric driven, like a Leonard Cohen something, a Leonard Cohen song, they still have a groove. It's that certain rhythm that attaches to the words, that attaches to the melody, that makes it come alive and merges with the rhythm of your heartbeat with the rhythm of the blood through flowing through your veins you know the rhythm of traffic on the street and and it, that's the magic having the rhythm merge with those other elements that i think that's what makes music come alive so capturing you know making sure you don't you know it's great to have a good idea great ideas are rare so something that f that you feel compelled enough to write a song about don't lose it. That's my that's my one piece of advice. Oh man, I can't agree more. I can't tell you when I was being a comic, I would think of a joke and I'd go, "Well, don't worry, you're not going to forget that." And then I'm oh, sure I did. Now it may not have been great, but it was forgotten, and that is problematic. Or even even if you kind of remember it, but it's the nuance that makes that's like the timing, you know, can be can be so important, or the exact wording of, you know. Like well, uh, some Fats jokes, Waller, the, no, uh, the no. Fats Waller song is you is or is you ain't my baby. Right. Well, then, well, the joke jokes are like that, too. Exactly. The, like, uh, take my wife, won't you? It's <laughs> not. It doesn't. And plus, I watch a lot of comedians talk about how they write stuff. And I've also seen comics work on a thing. You know, Mike Birbiglia. uh <laughs> Lives in my neighborhood, coolly, but I, I listened to his podcast, and of course, I've seen him. I don't know if you know him. Sure. Um, the, some jokes just don't work unless you remove things from them, uh, like because it's too wordy, or you don't need to get to a place to get that joke to happen. There's rhythm in comedy. There's just music and comedy are very similar. Yep. I do have a question before I forget to ask this. How does one explain Joni Mitchell? I love Joni Mitchell. Um, and yet I feel like no one else has permission or has ever tried to put words in a song that nobody else would be able to put in, in terms of sheer volume. Uh, and is that just me? Or do you ever look at that and go, well, that's brilliant. And she can do that. I have no idea how she, like some people, I just don't know. It's like watching a magician. Well, I, I know two things about sort of where she came from that I think help explain where she got to. Uh -huh. One is, um, she was a genuine like folky, like traditional folky. So she knew hundreds of songs that she learned to sing these old melodies from, you know, the child ballads or these ballads from England and Scotland and Wales. And she learned them all. And so there's actually a, a, a relatively new Joni Mitchell box set of her before her first album of her doing these oh folk standards. And she had this, you know, clear as a voice, clear as a bell voice, and then on, applied to these old traditional folk songs. It's just, you know, so that's her starting point. She learned them. She could do them. She mastered them. She totally mastered them. 
And then her mother loved bird songs. So her mother would, would point out bird songs and Joni as a little girl learned to imitate bird songs. So her, her melodic sense and those great melodic leaps that she does that sound natural when she does that nobody else can get away with, you know, she's doing, you know, a red-throated <laughs> northern grosbeak or, you know, whatever it might be. She's taking elements of these actual bird songs that feel natural to her because she learned them, she studied them. And so when she's certain, when she feels like a certain way, she's like, oh, I, you know, I can connect that because that's a, that's a European thrush sparrow and put this leap in there that a sparrow would do. And it fits the moment in court and spark. And it fits this lyric, this, the way that her heart beat on this certain day. So that's, I think, what makes her unique. A, she mastered the, the real traditional folk stuff. So she had this big platform to draw on, just like Dylan did. You know, Dylan, right. you know, he, he, did, he did his homework, you know. So that's one reason why he got to where he is when, he, when it was time to do his own thing. Just like the Beatles, they, they did their homework. They, they played R&B covers in basements in Hamburg and put up with <laughs> appalling tradition, you know, conditions. Right. But doing their homework, they learned, you know, every song they could get their hands on from American sailors for, you know, right. visiting England. So they learned this R&B. So, you know, so that's the, that's the Joni thing. Her, her melodic sense actually comes from bird song kind of filtered through this sophisticated woman. You know, I don't want people to leave this without finding out how do they get your album Lost Songs? Um, sure. Uh, and if anybody who wants the physical CD, which, you know, uh, are still fun to have, they're great. Um, just go to my website, terrykitchen.com, and we'd be more than happy to uh, to send you one. But it is also available digitally on Apple Music and Amazon Music and those kinds of outlets. So it's pretty pretty easy to find. I bet if you just go to any phone or computer and type in Terry Kitchen Lost Songs, you know, there'll be 20 ways that come up to get it. And then of course you I'm assuming you have some of your other albums available online sure. as well. Yeah. yeah. Um you know the the further back in time you go, if you want the eight track version of the Loose Ties <laughs> album, we can probably set you up. Uh, if you do want that, uh, Dad, you're still alive. Uh, I, I, I don't. I do remember when I was in high school, I had a friend who I remained nameless who had a Mercury Cougar XR7 that was something was broken, so it always smelled like gas in that car. But he had an A-track, there and go. there's nothing worse than listening to American Don McLean's American Pie. Because it, stops, because it stops in the middle and clicks to another track on the A-track. Yeah, and people, you know, the things we suffered through as kids, you'll just never know, all you young listeners. Um, is there anything that you feel like we should have touched on that, that we didn't? I mean, um, I'm well, certainly happy to have you on again because, uh, you know, we got 30 years of, uh, of knowledge of each other, but also there's plenty to talk about. But I just feel like I, I want to make sure that we put a nice bow on. Sure. I mean, obviously, I want people to hear your music and they can do that. TerryKitchen.com and, you know, Lost Songs and, and go to other places. But 
is there something you feel like, oh, wow, you know, I got on a podcast with Eric. There's something I wanted to make sure that I say. Well, sure. No pressure. One other thing that I'll mention is more recently, I, you know, I had this terrible idea. Like, why don't I try to write a novel? Um, <laughs> a, a, a friend of mine, uh, Chris Bauman, who's a talented folk singer, wrote a novel set in the Hoboken music scene in the 90s, which he came out of. And, you know, it's pretty good. It's if you if you care about that scene, it's definitely worth reading and it's it, it's fun to read. And I thought, you know, I was a part of something in the 80s, even though Loose Ties was kind of at the bottom of the totem pole or maybe by the end, maybe in the middle of the totem pole, but we were certainly never the Cars or Aerosmith. But it was this really cool scene where people came from all over the country. We came from Ohio. Bands came from all over because the Berkeley School of Music was here. And I know we have friends that both went to Berkeley. Um, Amy Mann was probably around that time too, yep, right? Exactly. Until Tuesday. Yep. We played many gigs with her band till Tuesday. You know, we were a double bill at a number of, number of clubs. Um, Love her, and, by the way. And Amy, if you're listening, as I hope you are, please call. Get get. We'll have you on. <laughs> Sorry. But I'm using you as a tool to get to Amy Mann yet again. Sorry. Well, when, to... when we get done with the official interview, then I'll tell you some Amy Mann stories. Um, Ooh, listeners. So sorry. I won't be able to share that. Anyway. But so anyway, so I thought, you know, this scene deserves to be to be written about so people can just read about what it felt like to be in this scene. So it took me a while. You know, it was not an easy thing to write a novel. And I'm not saying that I was especially skilled at it. I had to learn a whole new set of skills to try to do it. But it came out in 2013. It's called Next Big Thing. And it was it was fun to write. And I think it's a pretty good depiction of that scene. So if you are curious about the 80s Boston rock and roll scene, you know, more than like my own music or whatever, which isn't, you know, this was what we were at the time. It's not really that autobiographical. It's just you know, this band trying to navigate this this very unique scene, just all these different elements that happened to be in Boston at the time. So it's called Next Big Thing, and that might be worth checking out. And then I actually wrote a short story collection that also came out last year, which is called Coping Mechanisms. And those are more like songs. They're like little short stories, little vignettes. And it was fun to do. Didn't kill five effing years like writing the novel did. <laughs> And for people who don't know, you and I share a love of P.G. Woodhouse. And oh, absolutely. people who don't know who P.G. Woodhouse is, um, imagine a... We, we uh, don't even want to talk to those people. <laughs> right. If you don't know, then you don't know, you know? Um, P.G. Woodhouse, for the most part, really humorous. Well, Jeeves and Worcester. I mean, yes. that's a whole section. But I also loved, there were some beautiful short love stories set in New York City. There's one I remember with a cat. And yes. two single people. And it's just, he's charming. Would you say charming is a good yes, word? Very, very charming. And, you know, there's, uh, he, he was born in England, uh, then moved to America. And so there's things set sort of in old England. It's kind of that kind of like Downton Abbey kind of England that never really existed quite like that, but it's really fun to read about. And then the, you know, the American stories are fun as well. And very sweet. I think that's really the, the nice thing about him, he's great to read. Like during COVID, a lot of like the New Yorker did a profile on him just because so many people were reading P.G. Woodhouse because it was the perfect thing to after a, a crappy day of all the stuff yes. you were all doing. And if you were in New York City last year, I mean, you I know, was. It was really it was really bad. Uh, the nursing home near where I live was you know ground zero. Over 50 people had yep. died there. And there was an outdoor morgue. Um, sorry, folks, I'm just going to 
look, this is just the reality. There was a tractor trailer tra- trailer with a ramp up it, and it was constant, you know, a refrigerated trailer right, right outside of the hospital near me. And you don't have to be a detective to understand what that was there for. Right. So it, it, there were, it was frightening. It was tough. And I think P.G. Woodhouse is the perfect antic, antidote. Exactly. It just took you out of this world into this kind of make-believe world where things happen, but nothing too bad ever happens. Like the kind of problems, you know, uh, that people have are, you know, some guy got engaged, but he isn't really sure. So he's trying to get out of it, but he doesn't know how to get out of it without hurting anybody's feelings. And, you know, that like all the, the code of the English, there are things you, you just can't do or whatever. So how do you how do you get to be yourself when there's this list of a, a thousand and one things that you can never do? What's really funny to me is I, as you're saying that I'm thinking, you know, the the old school English would have no problem conquering and destroying a people like India or, you know, still right. and the nation. But to tell someone how you really feel about them, well, that's just not done. <laughs> yes. I'll, so I'll, I know we're just about done, but I'll, I'll close on this P.G. Woodhouse story. Great. So Great. We have friends who are in a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan plays. And personally, I'm a huge P.G. Woodhouse fan. I hope I never have to hear another F in Gilbert and Sullivan show. <laughs> um just again, because it's that it's it was that time of the English Empire where they were sure. so full of themselves, so full of themselves. So P.G. Woodhouse, as this aspiring writer, got invited to dinner at Sir Gilbert's house. He had been knighted by then. Wow. And he wanted P.G. Woodhouse is this very green writer, also not a society guy. He he had to work for a living. He worked in a bank. You know, his family was not rich. So. So he's, you know, at this fancy dinner at, at Sir Gilbert's house and he wants to make a good impression. So Gilbert tells one of his anecdotes and P.G. Woodhouse is so nervous. He's like not even listening, but he just he just knows he wants to make a good impression. So there's this pause. What do you do when somebody tells a funny story? You laugh. So P.G. Woodhouse lets out this big laugh, but it wasn't. The story wasn't over yet. It was the pause before the punchline. Oh, so the house was like let out this big laugh at entirely the wrong song at the wrong moment. So Gilbert is glaring at him and he caught the eye of the butler. P.G. Woodhouse could see the butler standing behind Gilbert who was cracking up <laughs> because the poor butler had heard Gilbert tell this story every night for the past 20 years. And this was the first time that someone had destroyed it. And so the butler is cracking up. And so that's why the butlers are always the heroes in PG movies, because it was the butler that got him through that moment. That is, that's awesome. I love that story. I didn't know it. Thank you, Terry. Uh, I really appreciate that. Well, this um, has been fun. I hope we get to do it in person sometime soon, Eric. Yeah, me too. Terry Kitchen, thank you so much for being on Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. Uh, Good luck with lost songs. Good luck getting through the rest of the pandemic. Loved ones, you know, please say hi to all of them for me and just be well. And we'll talk to you soon. Back at you. And I can't wait to get that muffin that you're putting in the mail for me. (laughs) Okay, will do. It was so great to talk to Terry. Um, And I hope you really enjoyed what he had to say. He's so full of great information, but he's also incredibly talented. And the proof's in the pudding. I mean, his records chart. It's not just something that, you know, 
I was giving away in the back of a car. This is a real accomplished singer-songwriter. Um, you know what else is real? The great taste and allergen-free nature of Abe's muffins. Get them, put them in your face. You will not be sorry, I promise you. Um, please visit isthatreallylegal.com if you want to leave me messages about Terry, about me, about the show in general, Abe's Muffins. Hey, subscribe to the show. I'll rate this show wherever you can leave ratings. Um, you know, I'm here for you. We're getting close to the end of this crazy pandemic, aren't we? Please take care of yourself and take care of the people you love. Wear a mask, get that shot, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.